You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. Hey, it's so good to be here with you today. Uh, somebody last service kept trying to clap. And it was like one person and like three and like five. So if you were here last week, you know what that's about. So I've, I've planted people in the room. I'm paying them a stipend for every clap. I'm just joking. No, I'm joking. No. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going bankrupt. Okay. We want to welcome everybody here today. If you're visiting with us today, we're about halfway through a series. We're talking about who we are as people who love God in the world and who God really is called all Christians, but this is kind of like our unique DNA. And so we want to welcome everybody watching online and everybody in the room and the visiting with us or even watching maybe later, could be a year or two from now. You need to know this is who we are. So I just want to stress, I didn't say this in those service. I need to say this better over the next few weeks to make this clear. If walking out of this, you want to know specifically what ministry or program do you need to take part in or do you need to launch. That's not what this series is about. And this series is about what we as a group of people are becoming. And so the way we apply that may change in different seasons, but the, the principle is still the same. This is what we're becoming as we become more like Christ. So quick question. You need to look at the person next to you, and I just want you to answer this simple question, all right? So if nobody's sitting next to you, find somebody sitting near you, look in front of you, look behind you, and answer this question. You ready? What do you think is the biggest organism in the world. Ready? Go. If anybody whispers Matt Nickerson, you're in trouble. All right, how many of you say the the Great Barrier Reef? Somebody said that earlier. I have no idea if that's the right answer. Somebody, I read online that there's some theory that it's this fungus, this mushroom somewhere. How many of you guys think fungus or a mushroom of some sort? Here's what I know. When I lived in Colorado, I learned this little tidbit of information, and I will say this. It's at least debated. If you Google it, there's not a clear answer. However, every time they've come up with something, this one continues to take, kind of take the cake for some reason or another. Here it is. There's a group of aspen trees in Utah called Pando. How many of you guys guessed Pando or aspen trees? How many of you Googled it to cheat? Anybody? Any cheaters in the room? Nobody wants to admit it, do they? The lights are down. Nobody can tell. Okay. Here's a picture of Pando. Here you go. Aren't they beautiful? So when I lived in Colorado, aspen trees, you can always tell an aspen tree out there, even though I think we have some sycamores and other things that are white at the bottom, kind of aspen trees are notorious in Colorado because they grow well in high altitude. So if you ever go to anywhere in the Rocky Mountain region um, and you go in the mm, September to October time frame, if you time it just right, there's usually anywhere from a seven to 14 day period where you will see just a huge swath of mountains that look like this. Now, I will say this, when we lived in Colorado, I moved there from the Midwest, from the Ohio Kentucky, Indiana area, and I got to tell you, the trees out there pale in comparison. The one thing you've got over the west is you have trees in the fall, and they are glorious and beautiful, reds and purples and oranges and amazing, and you go out there, and it's like, hey, look, there's yellow. That's pretty. But this group of trees, this is why they believe it's the largest in the world, because every time they find a group, it's not bigger than this. There are 47,000 tree trunks. You may go, how in the world do they know? They actually count them all. So what they do is actually go into the forest and they take a little piece off the tree and they run basically a tree DNA test. And they keep doing it until they find the edge. 
And so they just keep counting and they kind of start to circle and work their way out, work their way out, work their way out, work their way out until they've got the edge all the way around. They actually did this for 47,000 tree trunks covering 106 acres of land. It's calculated to weigh 13 million pounds. You thought you put on a couple at Christmas time. This dwarfed the previous claim about what was the biggest thing. And the word pando is Latin for the word to spread. Here's kind of a picture. You could zoom out a little bit and kind of see. This is still, you can't get it all in a picture, but it gives you an idea. These are all, or the vast majority of all of these are all started from one tree. Isn't that amazing? We believe here at Kingsway, this is what God wants to do in us. It all started with one tree and his name was Christ. And what God wants to do is he took that one trunk and he wants to spread and multiply himself. Now, the one difference between us and these trees is there is uniqueness, beauty in the body of Christ. We all don't have the same skin color. We all don't have the same height. We all don't have the same physical abilities. We all don't have the same personalities. We all don't have the same spiritual gifts. There is uniqueness. But what God is doing is gathering together this group of things, like things that are all this. So here's our purpose as a church. Our purpose is to become more like Christ. That's it. At the end of the day, as I told you last week, sometimes it's hard to know as a Christian, how do I know if we're winning? You know, in basketball, I shoot a ball, it goes to the hoop. If I do it more times than the other team, we win. In baseball, I stand at the plate. If I hit the ball or if I get hit by the ball, I get on base. If I can make it all the way around more times than the other team, we win. In football, if I get the ball across that line into the end zone or through the uprights more times than the other team, at the end of the game, I win. In golf, if I hit the ball more times than everybody else, I don't care what you say, that's how I'm playing it, we win. Maybe that's why I never went in golf. But the reality is, the reality is, in church world, it's so hard to know. How do we know if we're winning? And at the end of the day, if we do this, we win. And it's not about winning more than anybody else. That's the one thing that's different about the church world. We're not trying to do it better than Trader's Point or Harvest or anybody else. We're just simply trying to fulfill God's call to become more like Christ. And if we do that, we win. So what we said was, hey, what would this look like? And then last week, we looked at the fact that we want to be a people of celebration. I can't tell you exactly how to celebrate. I can tell you we do it individually. We do it corporately. We do it when we watch a video of somebody's life change. We do it when we hear a story of life change. We do it when we hear a, see a baptism take place. We do it when the church is just celebrating God's goodness like we did in song and like we just did. It was amazing worship set, wasn't it? And we just, yes, we did, yeah, give God the glory. We just... Thank you, God, for changing us and giving us talented people that you've placed your spirit in that can lead us to your throne to worship you. And we do it over and over and over again. We do it in small group. When one of our uh, small group members goes through something transformational, I just ran into one of our, uh, actually one of our musicians on stage, his wife's going through cancer right now, and uh, I ran into them in the hallway, and they're just kind of updating me, and he's like, it's been amazing. The church has been absolutely amazing at what God has done in them through this painful season. But the church has showed up and ministered to them, and he shows up and he plays on stage and ministers to you, and that's what the body is supposed to be like. It's just this beautiful organism that far surpasses 47,000 people and 13 million pounds, but we'll leave that one out. So, moving on. Here's the thing. What I know is this. Every Sunday, I stand up in front of tons of people watching online or, or in this room, and I get to teach God's word. And Jesus uses this analogy for people that do that. It's like taking a handful of seed and scattering it. 
Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells this illustration, and he says this. Imagine there's a farmer who takes seed, and he scatters it all over the ground. Now, what he is hoping for is that the seed will go into the ground and produce a good fruit, a good crop. But that's not exactly what happens. Jesus tells a story, and as he tells the story, he tells about four different kinds of soil and how the seed lands on each soil, but bad things happen to three of the soils, and something good happens to the fourth one. Now, when Jesus tells a story, as with many of Jesus' stories, everybody went, huh? But then Jesus pulled away with the disciples, and they said, huh? And he goes, here's what it means. First, let me tell you the soils. Soil number one, um, it says some of the seed fell on the path. And what happened was, because it fell on the path, it didn't fall into the dirt where it needed to be. It was kind of exposed and out there in the open. And the birds came along and ate it up. Now, the second kind of seed, Jesus says, <coughs> excuse me, fell into rocky places. And the problem with the rocky places is the next day when the sun came up and got scorching hot, the heat pounded down on that seed and ended up uh, really making it hard for it to grow. So the roots went into the ground and at first it looked great, like this is going to work. But then as the sun pounded down on it, it dried up and it died. And the third kind of seed, we're told, uh, fell among the thorns. And so what happened is at first it looked like it was doing good, but then over time some weeds grew up around it and it started to choke it out by taking away the water and blocking it from getting sunlight. And over time it didn't grow and thrive and flourish. Instead it slowly died. And then the fourth kind. The fourth kind fell on good soil. I remember when uh, my friend Billy Edmonds got here to Kingsway. I was telling him a story. I don't remember what we were talking about or why. I was telling him a story about how one time, and I've told this publicly, so forgive me. The older I get, I repeat myself, right? Like your parents. So um, I remember we were in Tennessee a couple years ago with my family, my in-laws. My father-in-law is a pastor. My, my brother-in-law is a pastor. And we went to a small church. The church probably had 17 or 20 people in it, and we almost doubled the size of the church. That's how small the church was. And I knew we were trouble when we showed up, not because it was smaller, but because when we showed up, they had no programming for kids. How do I know? They had no kids. And we showed up with a, a bunch of kids. We showed up, I think there were five kids with us at the time, and we showed up, and it's like, oh, no. So they kind of scrambled to gather some things and find some stale uh, goldfish crackers. We give you at least fresh goldfish crackers. And um, I'll never forget. I remember, here's what happened. The pastor was up. He was just greeting everybody. He was like, oh, hey, there's a bunch of people. And my father-in-law went up and talked to him. I don't know, at some point they'd met. I don't know. Anyway, he knows everybody. And they started talking. And the pastor, the preacher, looks at my father-in-law and says, well, do you want to preach this morning? And then my father-in-law said, no, 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 we're here. We're here on vacation. And he said, what about you? And he looks at my brother-in-law. And I'm thinking, oh, great, here it comes. And what, here's what went through my heart. Here's what went through my heart. He's not prepared. I started to judge him, honestly. In my heart, I started to condemn him because I went, he's not prepared. And the reason he wants one of us to speak is because he's, uh, he's intimidated. So I sat there, and he got up to speak, and honestly, I don't think he prepared. You can always tell when a pastor hasn't prepared because he gets up and he says, you know what I've been thinking about lately? I only do that like once a month. And I was telling this story to my friend Billy, and Billy said, you know, Pastor, the problem wasn't the guy delivering the message. The problem was the soil of your heart wasn't ready to receive the word of God. And I told him to shut up. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm joking. I'm joking. God had a word for me that day, but I never received it. 
because I was too busy thinking about me. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, by the way, is that, a, is that evil for them? No, it just means that they heard it, but nobody helped explain it. Nobody helped take it to the next level for them. So what Satan does, the evil one comes and he snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. You know, the bird came down, ate the seed. I don't have time to go into this, but I think it's sad when you hear, when you read stories about Steve Jobs. Apparently, he grew up at least attending some church occasionally, and he had some really hard questions about pain and suffering in the world, and he went and talked to a pastor, and the pastor gave him a really bad answer, at least in my opinion, a bad answer, and at that point, he determined to walk away from God. I have no idea where he ended up at the end of his life. I'm making no statement or judgment whatsoever. I'm just saying, this is what happens. When people come looking for answers and they don't get it, Satan just comes and says, well, I can plant a doubt there. So here's what ought to encourage you. If you're sitting there and this has happened to you, you have serious questions about God and who he is and nobody seems to be giving you answers, don't quit asking questions. You keep looking for somebody until they help you find what you're looking for. The seed falling on rocky ground, Jesus says, refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. I mean, they were living last week. God's awesome. He's changed my life. He's changed my family. This one is the one I probably see more than anybody. I get so anxious when someone comes up to me in the hallway between services, tells me how much God has changed their life at Kingsway, and I think, oh man, we have got to do something with you right now before it's too late. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, by the way, are Christians going to face trouble and persecution? You bet they are. Because specifically of the word, because of Jesus, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness, don't miss this church. Pastor, why do you talk about money? You know why I talk about money? Because it will steal your salvation. You're like, how is that possible? Because if I love money more than God, Jesus says you can't have two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. So you can't love God and money. If you love money, you will hate God. And Jesus says the deceitfulness of wealth choked the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. They come to church every Sunday. They laugh at Matt's terrible jokes, and they don't make fun of his balding spot. Now listen, it's fun to laugh and joke, but don't miss what Jesus said. He just gave three examples of seed that didn't take hold, right? Now, when I was a child, and I don't know about you, but when I was a child, I grew up at church. I went to VBS, I went to Sunday school, went to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. My dad was an elder. I had to live at the church. I'm not saying everybody had that experience or should have that experience. Praise God, some of those things are over. However, 
Because I grew up in the church, I heard these stories, these illustrations all the time. They stopped meaning anything to me, even though I didn't get the meaning. And what I walked away from this story is, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's not even the point of the story. The point of the story is there's a farmer who's scattering seed, and he wants it to be fruitful. But the reason some of it's not fruitful is because they're more concerned about the things of this world than they are the things of heaven. But the ones that are fruitful, they aren't just avoiding birds and weeds and sun. The ones that are fruitful are doing something. They're producing something, a crop yielding 160 and 30 times what was sown. Do you see the connection to what I've been telling you in John 12? Jesus wants to reproduce through you himself. He wants to create a grove of aspen trees so big, so massive, that as he reproduces himself, his DNA, in each of us all over this world, there's a massive harvest that comes from it. How do you know if you're winning at the end of the day? Church, is your life reproducing Christ in others? If it's not, please hear me gently, okay? If it's not, is it possible that the seed of God's word has actually fallen somewhere else than in good soil? If your life is too busy with your job, if your life is too busy with your kids' sports, if your life is too busy with anything other than God's kingdom, something else has that priority, is it possible that the seed God has sown in your heart is not on good soil and you are one dangerous step away from flaming out or being snatched away from you or choking to death when the weeds come? Because here's the thing, I believe today, as we talk for the rest of this message about what it means to have the core value of community, I believe community is the major answer for how God solves the problem. I do. Here's why. Tim Keller says it this way. It takes a lot of faith to get up and say, I believe in church. It's harder to believe what the Bible says the church can be than it is to believe much of what the Bible says about who God is. That's because believing in the church, being able to handle the church, understanding the church, and believing in God are, unfortunately, inextricably linked. You really are not going to be able to find God without dealing with the church somehow. And that is what makes It's so hard to find God in our world, am I right? The reason most of you who are sitting here visiting with us today or even watching online, the reason most of you have not really given God a chance, the way God is described in the Bible is because somewhere along the way, you met seed that fell on a soil. And you may have met seed that fell on a rocky path or on the dirt path. You may have met seed that fell uh, somewhere among the thorns. You just didn't know it. Because a person had all the the words of a Christian, we read about these people all the time in the news, right? The media loves to find that Christian who's not living as if the word of God is planted on healthy soil. They love to be extravagant in the ways they talk about God and condemn everybody else. But the reality is, Christians can be like aspen trees. 
So when we bought our house in Colorado, uh, they, the way they did those homes out there, they give you the tiniest yard possible, and then they only finish the front yard, and then they charge you way too much money, because they're like, hey, you live in Colorado, you're paying for the mountains. You have no choice. So you have to put the backyard in yourself. Well, we put our money into the house, we didn't have a lot of money left, so we're literally borrowing leftover sod from neighbors and stuff like that, it was amazing. And I went to some friends that said, look, we gotta put in some trees in our backyard, so what do we do? And they said, oh, aspen trees are fantastic. They, they grow really fast, they're really hardy. You almost can't kill them, I'm like, sounds like my kind of tree. So we put an aspen tree in the back corner of our backyard. I think we ended up putting one in the front. I don't remember now. And here's what I didn't know about aspens at the time. They want to produce groves, which is fantastic if they're up in the mountains where you want them to be and you get to look at them and they're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. It's amazing to reproduce that. But do you know what they do when you put them where they're not supposed to be and they're not doing what they're supposed to do? They pop up everywhere. We constantly had aspens popping up on our grass, popping up in our rocks, popping up around this, ruining that. My neighbor was none too happy when he kept finding this crabgrass-like material growing in his yard, and he couldn't figure out what it was, and then he figured out it was an aspen tree. And when he looked around, he saw one guy with an aspen tree on the other side of the fence. He was not happy with me. See, aspen trees, just like Christians, are great when they're doing what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to do it, but when they're not it can get ugly and messy and intrusive and annoying. Here's the thing. Jesus intends to make something out of you and something out of me that is not annoying, but is a blessing to the world. And that thing is called community. It is. In fact, I read this to you last week, but I'm just going to dig into it a little deeper here. First Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Peter, that's the guy who, you know, you've heard of St. Peter. He's always standing at the gates that don't exist in heaven. But anyway, as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Let's just stop there. Let's just unpack this, all right? Because if you miss this part of the analogy, the second part fails. So as you come to him, the living stone, this is Jesus. Why a living stone? Well, there's many biblical analogies related to a stone. However, in what Peter's building on, he's very much building on the stone of a temple. I'll show it to you in a minute, but he's building on the stone, the idea of the temple, the literal temple in Jerusalem. It was a really big deal to the Jews. Now, the way you would build this massive temple is the first stone would have to go down, and you have to make sure that it is perfectly aligned to where it needs to be. I was talking to one of our members, Mark, and he works, um, he works for construction companies. I think he does some architecture work inside. And he was telling me after the last service, Matt, you know what's amazing today? You think about like if you wanted to build a building downtown in Indianapolis today, if you don't have that first stone perfectly lined up, then your building sticks out into the road or whatever it is. Like you've got a major problem on your hands. So that first stone has to be laid exactly right. Then all the other stones are lined up off of that. That's exactly what Peter's trying to say. Jesus, our living stone, he's not just a rock, he is a living rock. He's not dead, he's dead and come to life. And he's in heaven, he's not dead, gone up to heaven, he's alive and reigning and active in our life. He's a living stone that we line up our lives off of. He was rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. Why is that important? Because Peter's writing to a group of people who are in danger of being choked out by the weeds, stolen like a bird, are you with me? He's trying to encourage them and say, look to Jesus. So when life is hard and confusing and you don't understand what God is doing, you will be able to look to him and see that though he was rejected, he was chosen by God and he centered his identity in God. He knew he was precious to the Father. And why is that important? Look at the very next verse. You also 
like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So you, like an aspen tree, are being multiplied so that, again, he's the living stone. You are little living stones. And you are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Well, you just changed analogies on me. No, no. It's actually all the same analogy. Here's why. It's this. This is what he's talking about. Go ahead and go to the picture. This is the temple mount. What used to stand up here was the temple of God until the Romans came in and sacked it in 70 AD through a man, uh, I think it was Titus, so I'm getting my Roman emperors correctly, came in and literally tore down the temple. If you were to pan back, you would see up here the, the uh, Dome of the Rock, I think it's called. It's the Islamic temple now sitting in this place. Why is that important? If you go all the way back, it's like Bible, we're going to go like Bible 101 to Bible 401, and then some of you will be like, huh, it's okay, all right? Don't let Satan steal your joy. Just stick with me, and someday it might make sense. In the garden, the garden was the temple of God. And what does that mean? It's the place where God met with man. What was going on in the garden, if you remember, God took Adam from outside the garden and he placed him in the garden. So God built the garden and he told him, you have two jobs, right? Be fruitful and multiply. You're going to multiply the image of God to the ends of the earth and you're going to subdue the earth. So outside of the garden, it's a little bit wild. It doesn't mean wild like African safari today, you're going to get eaten because it wasn't that world, but it's a little bit wild and you're going to take this garden to the ends of the earth. What are you doing? You're taking the place where God meets with man and you're going to multiply it until the whole earth is filled with literally the glory of God through human beings who are his image bearers and through the mission of God being expanded to the ends of the earth. But then Adam and Eve sinned and God kicked them out of the garden and now they don't live inside the temple of God. So what did God do to solve the problem? He kept getting closer. And eventually at some point it ends up in a tent, a moving tent. It just kind of went with the people of God. It was in an ark for a while, right? Then it ended up in a stationary tent, and then it ended up in a building, and that building got tore down by the Babylonians, and it got rebuilt by Herod here, and this is all that's left of it. And for 2,000 years, as you can see down here, people have gathered and stuffed little prayers into the cracks and crevices, asking God to rebuild this massive temple. I can just tell you, from where I read my Bible, it's not going to happen. Why is it not going to happen? Because he already rebuilt it. Right here. And right there. The temple of God doesn't need a building because it exists in the hearts of men and women just like us. You clap for God. Thank you. Remind me to give you your money after the service. This is huge. So I, I, the way I'm an audible learner, right? And I'm ADD, so I have to do things with my hands and listen with my ears. So if you ever see me walking around in public and it looks like I'm talking to myself or I'm, I'm like praying or something, I'm listening to something really deep and profound and I'm stopping. So if you're like, does Matt ever work? Like I saw him at Lowe's in the middle of the day or, or I saw him at home working in his garage. Like this is how I learn. So the days where I'm studying, I'm listening and I'm learning, okay? So I'm not crazy when you see me. I, okay, I'm crazy, but that's not why, okay? So... 
I was listening to this phenomenal teaching by, uh, all I can remember, he was a professor at a college, and I think it was Dallas Theological Seminary, and I don't remember who he was, I don't remember who he was talking about. So lots of grace, and whoever he was, may God give you credit one day. But he said this, when he was a young man growing in his faith, he heard one of his mentors get up to speak. And when he said this, it stopped me in my tracks. And he said, the gentleman got up to speak, and he said, um, please, Offer me grace today. I am literally standing in the presence of Almighty God. And I am humbled that he is allowing me to come and teach him about who he is. And I went, that is so deep and profound, it just hurt my brain. But what he was trying to get to is the sense that when you came to Jesus Christ, God placed in you his temple. You are the temple of God. You are walking on earth as God. I don't, don't misunderstand it. Get over yourself and let go of your pride and quit reading into what I'm saying. I'm not saying you're God, you're not. But God's in you. You are now the place where heaven has met earth, just like in the garden, just like in the tabernacle, just like in the temple, except now it's in you. And when you walk around, you are literally carrying the Holy One of heaven in you to the world. And each of you, Peter's saying, are a brick in this process. Together you make the temple of God. This is exactly what he means. In fact, he goes on in verse nine and he says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. The reason he's saying all those things again is because you're the temple. You're one of the bricks. He's tying it all back to you're the priest. You're the priestess. You're the temple. You're the place where God needs. You're the hands and feet that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. Well, you're like, duh, I was a person. That's not what he's saying. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Man, I could spend a whole hour right there on that little verse. In the New Testament church, we had two groups of people who hated each other, Jews and Gentiles. The Jews were so puffed up and arrogant, and, and the Gentiles were so immoral and, and evil and pagan-like, and then God said, smash them together. Go read Romans chapter one sometime. You see the evilness of the, of the Gentiles. And then you get to chapter two where Paul's transitional phrases, and oh, by the way, you who judge them are no better because don't you do the same things. And God took these two people and he smashed them together. And you know what you had going on in the New Testament church? A whole bunch of racism. Oh, it was terrible. There was so much backbiting and devouring and finger pointing and we're this and you're that. Oh yeah, but we're this and we can do this and we're saved by that. Oh, it was terrible. Sounds like every church you've ever heard of. It was amazing. And God wanted to kill it all. All that sin and divisiveness, all that looking at colors of skin and cultures and backgrounds have nothing to do with him. He wanted to kill it all and build something beautiful. Go back to that picture for me, if you will. He wanted to build a bigger temple. Now imagine with me, I could go in here and I could pull out, like this is a really big, I don't know if you can see it, you can't zoom in as well as I can. That right there is a big brick compared to some of these other things. I could pull that out. You know, I could come over here and I could pull this one out and I could come over here as a smaller one, I could yank that out. I could come up here to some of these smaller ones and just pick some of these ones out. I could do that and the stability of the wall will be okay. And you could pull a few out here and here because they're all leaning on each other. No one brick makes the building makes the temple. However, if I take out enough of these little pieces, do you know what's gonna happen to the stability of this thing? 
Same in every church in the world. The church only exists as a temple gathered together if every brick is in its place. But what happens in almost every church in America, and we are no different, 20 to 25% of the people do 75 to 80% of the giving and the sacrificing and the work. And that's no guilt trip. The reason I say all this is because I am desperately concerned for some of you. Because I've read Jesus' stories and I've been a pastor now for almost 20 years and I've watched it happen over and over and over again. There's this joy that, that develops as you meet Jesus and you're so excited about what he's doing in your life, but you never connect to the body. You never give back to the body. Church becomes about what it does for me, what I can get out of it, and eventually what it'll do is it'll kill you. And I love you too much as your pastor to see it happen. I've stood across, sat across, cried with, wept over, prayed for more people than I could count, begging them, please, don't isolate, don't pull away, don't run away. I know it's hard, I know it's messy, I know it's painful, I know it's difficult, I know it is, but it's called church. And we desperately need to rain the grace of God into each other's lives and say, you know what, I need it and you need it and we need it together. I've watched life groups fall apart. I've watched churches. Yeah, you can clap for God. And when you get isolated, when you get alone and Satan starts playing around with you, man, who's gonna be there to lift you up? Who's gonna be there to hold your arms up when they're tired? Who's gonna be there to shoulder the load when you've sinned? Who's gonna be there to financially help put your family back together? Who's going to be there when, you, when someone in your family dies? Who's going to be there when you're questioning God and his faithfulness? Who's going to be there for you? The reality is there's a whole bunch of people. But here's the thing. Rick Warren says, pastors like churches bigger, but people like churches smaller. He's right. We see if everybody up in the pews would snuggle together and everybody sitting in a chair won't leave one or two chairs between them and the people next to them. We see somewhere around 13 to 1350 max capacity. That's every booty in a chair. If that happens, if that happens, like, you know, a packed Easter Sunday kind of thing, the reality is that's way bigger than most people want. In fact, I read an article, and I have no data to back this up, so you dated junkies, I don't know what to tell you. A guy named Todd Clark wrote an article when I was a young youth pastor, and it was called The 40 Barrier, because it basically said this, the average person feels comfortable knowing about 25 to 30 people at any one time. Now, some of you, depending on your personalities, you may know 100 people, but you're really not invested in 100 people. <clears throat> you're invested in about 25 to 30 people. That's about all you can handle capacity-wise. Some of you really love five people, but you really still have the capacity for about 25 which is why most churches get stuck at that first barrier of around 25 to 50 people. That doesn't go any bigger. It's also about the size of a family room in a decent-sized house. You can squeeze that into a house with kids, and you can make it happen. However, you get beyond that, and it doesn't work anymore. And so the only way a church of 25 to 40 can get any bigger is they've got to get smaller. So you got to split the 40 people into two groups of 20, and they can each add about 10 more. But then you got to split that group, and then you got to split that group, and then you got to split that group, and then you got to split that group. And what happens is a church gets bigger because it gets what? Smaller. But the fear in smaller is smaller takes vulnerability. Smaller takes transparency. 
Smaller takes me allowing you to enter into my life and see that I'm not as perfect as I would like for you to think that I am. See, when I'm standing on stage, I could tell you a story about my wife, my parents, my neighbors, former pastoral, small group, whatever. I could sound amazing. And then you get my everyday life and you go, wow, he's just as messed up as the rest of us. Yes, he is. And the reason most of us love coming to large churches when we do is because you get great preaching and great worship and great kids programming. And you don't have to deal with the pain of other people. You don't have to let anybody in and you don't have to be counted on. But then you're not really a stone and a wall. You're just a stone sitting out here somewhere or out here somewhere. I mean, everybody could walk by and go, shouldn't that be in there? Sounds silly, right? Of course it should be. God was never building a gathering for Sunday morning. In fact, we have great reason to believe they didn't even meet on Sunday morning. They met probably Sunday afternoon or later in the day when they were eating food. They used to have these things called agape feasts in the book of Acts where everybody would gather together and just eat meals. In fact, James rebukes the believers in his book because they're gathering together and they start eating before everybody shows up. He's like, what are you doing? You can't eat before everybody shows up. That wouldn't make you a temple. Well, they were running behind. Yeah, I know. It took them a long time to get there. Suck it up and wait. What do you mean wait? Well, you're playing favorites to the rich. You're playing favorites to the prominent. You're ignoring those who it takes longer, or maybe they're poor or whatever. You're giving them the worst seats. You're not acting like a family. What God is trying to build inside his church is this thing called community. Community means this, we love others. And we can't just say we love others. Yes, I love others. No, 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 we gotta show we love others. Because love is a verb. It's not, a, it's not just a word. It's an action. And my greatest fear for some of you is that you're going to show up at Kingsway and enjoy the preaching. You're going to watch online. You're going to enjoy the preaching. And it's a great first step. But if you never take that second step of getting connected to others and actually living it out with other people, you might one day walk away from God. Tim Keller says this. We can't live the Christian life without a band of Christian friends, without a family of believers in which you find a place. I wish I had time to read the quote, but the problem is every time I read the quote, it doesn't make sense to me. So I'm going to summarize the quote. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Four Loves, where he talks about in the Greek language, there are four words for love, and one of them is phileo, the brotherly love. In his book, in that chapter, he talks about the fact that there were four friends that were very, very close. Him and three other guys. One of the other friends was J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. And he talks about how one of the other four guys, Charles, dies. And he said what he realized when one of his friends died was that he didn't just have a relationship with Charles, but he had a relationship with Tolkien related to Tolkien's relationship with Charles. So when Charles died, there was this deep aching and longing in his heart that was missing when Charles would tell a joke and he would laugh and Charles joked, but there was also another part of Charles that was missing and it was the way Tolkien would laugh at Charles's joke and the comments that he would make back to Charles. So now when the three of them had gathered together, there was a deep aching that wasn't just a one-to-one, it was a one to each and every other person and how that one person brought life to the entire community of people. How much more so heaven 
Imagine a place where multitudes of millions, probably billions of people of all time gathered together, each person in some unique way reflecting the personality, the image, the glory of God, and all of us interacting with them in a beautiful way. It's exactly what God's trying to build. You will have eternity to get to know each other and whatever the angelic beings and the have they going on. And, and God, you will spend eternity learning the depths of God and still not have enough time to process it all. It's a beautiful picture, but it begins begins not there in the distance after you die. It begins here today in this gloriously messy thing called the church. And I ache, I ache as a pastor. I pray at night, I lose sleep because I can't fix you. And I want to. I can't even fix me, my own family half the time. I'm just not powerful enough. My words don't have enough power in them. Here's what I've learned over years and years and years of doing this thing called church is I can't make you want community. I can't make you get into that community and act like a Christian. I can't make you be vulnerable, but here's what I can do. I can create the right environments where it could happen if you and others will allow it to take place. We could create community groups and life groups and all kinds of gatherings. We could put kids' ministries together and put them in groups, the student ministries together, put them in groups. We could put camps and retreats together, men's and women's retreats. We could do all these things. We can create the right environment where community could take place, but until you step up and say, I don't want to be alone anymore, it's never going to happen. And coincidentally, what's going to happen is we're just going to have a bunch of stones seed that fell in the wrong place and never had a chance to grow. See, being a community means this. It means we share life and serve together in relationships that honor Christ around his truth and encourage one another as a support network during life's challenges. Jesus says it this way, and I promise I'm almost done. Your kids are running out of goldfish crackers. (laughs) Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You may be going, what in the world is he talking about? Well, salt in Jesus' day had many purposes that we don't necessarily experience today. For instance, uh, salt in Jesus' day was used to flavor food, which we do experience. Some of you need to cut back a little. You got a little bit of high blood pressure going on, right? When I went to Peru, I really got to see this. When I went to Peru, my missionary friend down there told me, he said, Matt, the food down here is really bland. You gotta go to very specific places to get the food. They don't use much seasoning. And I gotta tell you, I had a meal of of chicken and potatoes. I don't remember there was something else. And literally, I was choking it down with water because the natural food had some flavor, but honestly, it just kept gumming up on my mouth. There was nothing to make my mouth water. This is like celebration to Christians. When people meet Christians and there's no saltiness to their life, there's nothing about them that says, look, I have joy in the midst of life's sorrows. Why in the world would I want to trust in a God who brings me no joy in the midst of the pain? But when somebody meets a Christian who has unbelievable joy because of what he's done for them, regardless of life circumstances, it makes no sense. And they say, man, I'd love to have a piece of that. 
In fact, that same guy I told you about earlier, I ran into in the hallway, his wife has cancer. He said, Pastor, tonight we're meeting with another couple and one of them has cancer and we're gonna tell them our testimony and about how good this church has been to us and I can't wait to share the story of God. That's what it means to season life with celebrationly salt. But you know what else? In ancient days, they would use salt to heal wounds. We still do to some extent, right? You put it in water, you mix it up, you got a sore throat, you gargle. Over the Dead Sea, it is, it is a place where the water goes in and has no exit, and it is unbelievably salty. And so certain skin diseases, kind of gross, right? Literally, you could scratch them and get into the water, and it'll heal them. Well, anyway... Part of the reason Jesus says this, he says, if the salt doesn't heal anymore, what good is it? And then there's a third purpose salt had, and that is to preserve. We still use it for that today. We just use it through a lot of other chemicals and preservatives and things like that, refrigeration methods. But back in the day, and if you wanted meat to not expire right away, you had to literally put salt on it because salt preserves life, keeps it going a little longer. Just like when we're compassionate, what we're doing is we're reaching into the pain of this world and we're saying, just hold on a little longer. Don't quit. Don't give up. This is not the end of your story. But Jesus says, if salt doesn't have any of these benefits, then what is it? He goes on, actually, in Luke 14, telling the same story, he adds this little phrase. It's neither fit for the soil nor for the manure pile. It's literally just thrown out. Did you catch what Jesus just said? See, salt, if it didn't have any of those benefits for us, in the very least, you could take salt and throw it on poop. And it at least helped to break down and kill the poop. I mean, if nothing else, your life could help kill that. Somebody last service said, Pastor, did you really have to give that illustration? We had a kid who had a mess, and we're blaming you for it. <laughs> You're welcome. But Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness... Just toss it out. There's no benefit for life anymore. Listen, in the book of Revelation, Jesus goes to one of the most famous churches in that day, the church of Ephesus, where we get the book of Ephesians, and he says to them, if you do not return to your first love, Ephesus, when it launched, you read it, it launched with fire for God. They were on fire to love God and love others, just like Jesus commanded us to do. But what happened by the time we get to the book of Revelation is they've turned away from loving God and loving others. They are inwardly focused, and they are not loving the world anymore. And Jesus says, if you don't change and come back to me, I'll just take your church out. I'll just remove your lampstand. I'm not going to lose any sleep over this one because I'll find some other people where I can produce salt, where I can spread seed, where I can find people willing to reproduce their lives and the lives of others. Pick your analogy. Stones in a wall, temples for him, whatever it is, but church, you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill. And a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5, 14 is simply this. I'm building a city within a city. And this city will be elevated for all to see. And when people look up, will they see your light? Will they taste your salt? Will they see a temple? Will they know that the God of heaven is in you? And here's what I know. Some of you have some things you need to do, some changes you need to make to make this place the house of God again. What I want to do is go into communion time.
And in communion time, I want to encourage right now, look around the room. Do you see anybody alone? If so, when I'm done praying, you're going to get up and you're going to go sit next to them. And here's what's going through your mind. Some of you are like, but communion is for me and God. No, it's not. Like, yes, it is. The reason we do communion is so I can repent and get deal with my sins. Really? Name one time in the Bible that they took communion alone. Name one. I don't know of any. If you do, I'd love to learn it. Communion started at the Last Supper when Jesus took the Passover meal. He's sitting with the disciples, and he broke the bread, and he said, here, take this. This is my body. Eat it. Was he by himself? Nope. Was he with one disciple? Uh-uh. He was with a group of them. We get into the New Testament. It says, and they gathered together weekly, and they broke bread the first day of the week. Was it together? Yes. All the time? You bet it was. Why? Because they were together. Did you know the word community comes out of the word communion? Look at that. They sound exactly alike. You know why? Because this was never supposed to be an isolated thing whereby, okay, God, I know I didn't this week, and I know I didn't do my Bible study every week, and I know this week, God, I looked at a thing I wasn't supposed to look at, and I probably shouldn't have spent the money in that way, and God, would you just forgive me because I love you and I need you? Yeah, do that, but do that with everybody else. Now, some churches do this by, hey, we're going to take all the bread at the same time. That's powerful. We do that sometimes. But here's what I want you to do. I want nobody sitting alone. You may just go sit next to them and say, I'm not alone. My spouse is just serving right now. You, that's fine. You'll say, that's great, but I'm sitting right next to you. I'm going to talk to God next to you. And when you're done, you're just going to say, hi, God bless you. Have a great day. And if you want to start up a conversation and share cell phones, single people, this is a perfect opportunity for you. <laughs> just trying to help in any way I can. But the point is, let's, let's not let anybody live in isolation. While it's still called today, let's love each other the way God has loved us. Let's pray. Father, oh great God above, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. You are such a good God. God, I pray right now. I pray. I meant to say this in my sermon, God, so forgive me. I'm not trying to preach. I'm just trying to share my heart, God. Lord, I know right now, if we leave here today and 300 people feel motivated to not live in isolation and they reach out and say, I want to be in a group, I want to be in a community group or whatever it is, Father, I know we don't have 30 leaders. I know we don't. And I know part of the reason we don't, God, is because godly men and godly women have come to this church and have given sacrificially in so many ways for years, but they've never stepped out to lead a group because they don't believe they're good enough or smart enough. They don't have what it takes. But God, what they need is your confidence. Right now, God, I need leaders. I need leaders. I need men and women willing to say, you know what? I'm going to step out of my comfort zone like the disciples. I want to be called out to leave my family, to leave what I know I want, to give to Jesus what is best for him and for his kingdom. So, Father, even out of this prayer, stir up leaders among us. God, I pray right now for every student and child who comes to our programming. God, we live in a terrifying country right now. Man, I'm afraid sometimes for our kids who go to school and never know what kind of crazy thing is going to happen next. But God, when they come here, may they find a group of people so sacrificially loving and giving of their life and their time that we're creating a place, a safe place for people to come and be vulnerable together, not to have all the answers, God, but to walk together in grace. God, I pray that you would move in our hearts. Do not let us leave today the way we came in, Father. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name.